Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. I think this is the third conversation between me and Matt Valor as we've been reading and thinking through Bernard Stiegler's Techniques in Time, Volume 1. I'll link to the previous conversations in the show notes so you can go back and have a listen to those if you like. I don't think I have too much to say here uh, at the top. I do just want to remind everyone about our upcoming seminars. Later this month, Adam Clark will be with us to talk about radical theology and the Black Liberation Theology of James Cone. Uh, August is now open. Thea Cooper, we've, we've rescheduled. She'll be joining us in the fall to lead a discussion on Marcel Althus Reed. And so we have an open slot at the moment for August, and so we'll be figuring that out soon. Uh, If anyone has any suggestions, hit us up. Then in September, Clayton Crockett will be with us to talk about radical theology and new materialism. Go to patreon.com slash radical theology and sign up for only five bucks. You'll get to directly interact with our seminar leaders and guests, And we'd love to have you join the conversation. All right, that's out of the way. Here we go. Hey, this is really random, but this is a technics question that I feel like I need to ask because my brother sent me a message couple of weeks ago out of the blue saying did you know that americans don't have electric kettles and i was like what the what do you mean they do, how can you not have an electric kettle everyone has an electric kettle that's like the basis the whole of british society is run around having an electric kettle is, i would do you have electric kettles there was something I, to do with the voltage we were talking about voltage levels no it's no, it has nothing to do with voltage. In my estimation, it has to do with more with uh, culture because you are tea drinkers and yeah. we're, we're more on the coffee thing over here. Like if you go to uh, Airbnb, for example, you're guaranteed there's going to be a coffee, coffee play. If there's not a coffee maker in like a, even in a hotel room, they're just like, what the fuck? Couldn't put a coffee. You know, it's like you're saying, it's minimal hospitality, I guess. Um, electric kettles. I have one. I don't remember the last time I used it. Right. <laughs> Because I make my coffee, I like to do pour over. So I boil okay. my kettle like to the right temperature and yep. then I pour over. So when I was doing French press, I used it as well. But I just have been using the, the drip. It's a little bit easier. I can put it in, walk away from it, come yeah. back, come back. My coffee's ready and I'm fine with it, you know? It hit me like a thing out of the blue. It's a sudden moment of difference. Yeah. So everyone has an electric tea kettle over there. Yeah. And everybody who has coffee uses it to make, unless you have like an espresso machine or something. Oh, okay. The, you know, the machines with the baskets uh, yeah. are, are kind of the standard. People yeah. do other things. We just don't really do that much. Yeah. That's the standard over here. Ah. People do other things now too. You know, um, the pour over for me is just too much, too much work. I don't know why. I just don't have patience for it. No, fair enough. Anyway, that's maybe not the most interesting way to start a conversation, but it was just on my mind. Well, uh, I know what to expect when uh, when I'm over that way. Yeah, when you come to Cornwall, yeah. we'll be pour of a coffee from a kettle, and then we'll <laughs> spend the rest of the time drinking beer. How is the beer over there? Is it is it a lot of Belgians and that kind of thing? 
No, 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 no. I mean, we're getting good Belgian import down the local beer cellar. Uh, but yeah, there's um, there's a lot of craft, what you'd have where you are, okay. you know, various types of IPA, pale ales, sours, stouts. I went through a, a sour phase where that's all I wanted to drink. Okay. And I think I eventually my, my face just like kind of... You just like imploded in on yourself. It just imploded in. I was like, all right, no more. <laughs> I do like a good sour, but just in moderation. I drink a lot of beer, uh, too much. And but there's there's a huge amount of great microbreweries around here, yeah. and uh, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. I actually want to write. I think I told you this before. I want to write a proper ethnographic study. Oh yeah, that's right. Did you you, you met with beer you? and Cornish identity along you the met... lines of Anna Singh's "The Mushroom at the End of the World." Yeah, you met with your advisor, I guess, or somebody to discuss that. How did that go? I had a connection with Exeter University. Yeah, that, it's, it's been fun. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that project will ever happen, but um, mm. yeah, I've actually been invited to join the Institute of Cornish Studies at Exeter, like as a associate researcher. So that's cool. Okay. What do Cornish people study? <laughs> uh, people, the, the Institute of Cornish Studies studies Cornish identity oh. as a, like a very particular ethnic identity within britain all right so like, like cornwall cornish is a language like it's britonic language linked to welsh and there's a whole kind of cornish history that most people don't know about but it has a very strong it's got a much longer history of placeness than say england oh that's interesting i didn't know cornish had its own language do you know any uh not much i could say which is like hello and muras which is thank you not 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 a ton i keep thinking about learning it but it's uh, people learn it but it's very much like the performance of a culture as part of asserting a cultural identity and there are very few people that would speak it as a first language the cornish identity is really complex because it has a very long history and it is partly a colonized history because it, it got cornwall was colonized by the english essentially that colonization is happens in stages over hundreds of years. So it's not like, and some would argue is still never fully integrated, even as an English county, uh, actually as a legal status of a duchy, because it has protectorate from the Prince of Wales, who is the Duke of Cornwall. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, really fascinating history, real, very, very old place, um, continuous sense of culture that you just don't get in England. England is very young from a European point of view. It's like, you know, only just over a thousand years old. Even the English is like, what, 1500 years old? Like, mm -hmm. it's funny because I'll drive around the area here and I'll see like little signs that indicate historical buildings. And by historical, you know, it's yeah. like 150, 200 years old. And like, that's, that's as far as we go. Yeah. But that's because of the systematic erasure of um, actual history. I mean, it's in, we've got history to talk about, haven't we? Like, mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like what counts, what is the part, what is the past that you bring to the present and all of that? And maybe this is a good way to get into the Stiegler stuff, because you were saying it's like the erasure of history is at once the articulation of history. And I think Stiegler's doing a similar thing when it comes to being, a la Heidegger, of course. Maybe a good place to start is just to say that this is by far the most Heideggerian section of the book. Unquestionably. And a working together of Heidegger and Derrida. Yeah. You know, maybe less explicitly. Which Yeah, I thought it was interesting because I, my understanding is that Stiegler was like a student of Derrida. 
And obviously crucial to Derrida's project is a reading of Heidegger right at the start. And so it feels in one sense like Stiegler is taking Derrida and uh, pushing his reading of difference back into Heidegger's notion of being. Yeah. From which he kind of got the idea of some of the things that helped him produce the idea of difference in the first place. So So I also want to say that this is like, for me, was the most difficult chapter to read. I, I actually read the whole thing like twice. I like I've spent <laughs> spent so long with this now. It like took me pretty much a full day to read it, and then I just did another day to read it again. And wow. I still don't know if I'm going to be that articulate, but I I just felt like I'm reading something that is very difficult and uh, quite important, certainly to my own research. So I I have given it time. It I, even second time round, I felt like. There are things here I don't really know. I feel like I don't know enough Heidegger to to kind of really, really be sure what what is actually being said. I did not read it twice. I read a little bit the other day, got a few pages in, and I was just like, oh my God, Matt's right. This is fucking tough. (laughs) I didn't touch it since then. So about seven o'clock this morning, I started reading it. (laughs) Okay, nice. Uh, And did get through it. It is a difficult read. I also felt as though the difficulty of it demanded a a closer reading. And the more I had to kind of squint at it, I the more I felt like I was beginning to get a feel for the general contours of what he's getting at, which is probably not articulable in, you know, a sentence or two. This is why he has three fucking volumes. Right. <laughs> We've noticed that he does give little clues typically at the beginning and end of chapters about what he's doing at a high level. I caught it pretty early on. It's the first sentence of the second paragraph. He kind of just lays out what he's going to be doing here. I'm not sure if this is a second order task or a subtask of what he was doing previously in the book, which you know he wrote was to conjugate techniques and time. I feel like he's established that to a large degree. And now he's moving into another section here where he wants to, he says, the who and the what in their very conjunction are the concern both of the present chapter and especially of the next. So he's taking the conjunction of the who and the what as a given. And now he wants to explicate that vis-a-vis Heidegger's existential analytic, all all of the, the resource that he's been bringing to bear for his argument up until this point. Yeah. I think that's good. My understanding was that as he progresses the idea of the who vis-a-vis the what, the who becomes Dasein uh, as the improbable, which felt to me very much like a, a also an improbable, uh, this kind of being that is um, hidden in some sense, even from itself. Mm. And that being is idiomatic, even idiotic. It has, you know, it's kind of its own really uh, idiosyncratic. um, Individuation, self-containment sort of thing. Right. And the what, he begins with the idea of the clock and that the clock is the means by which you determine the when uh, or the now, and that this technical apparatus 
all it's doing is like ticking around according to a mechanism that provides a regular time interval between each tick. It's not actually constructing time. All it's doing is regulating a movement, but the clock in conjunction with the calendar means that every time it goes round, you say, yes, a day has passed. And then you add to that the calendar and you tick the days off. And so these, there's a written text, there's a technical instrument, and he takes that back, as I, as I read it, to, he gives the example of, um, I think it's one of the tribes that Leroy Gohan had dealt with before, where it's like they have the cattle clock. They're not structuring time in the way that you or I might structure time because they don't have a mechanical clock in the way that you or I have a mechanical clock. But the cattle clock is how they regulate time. And you can take this all the way back to the fact that, of course, the we're observing the sunrise and the sunset and um, uh, the seasons of the year. And so actually baked into our experience of the world is this structure that forms the clock and therefore forms the idea of now. But if I, I was, I mean, this is a question I had is, is I was trying to work out the extent to which uh, a clock and a calendar are different for Stiegler to the sun and the moon. Well, that's what I was going to suggest because he doesn't talk about the sun and the moon too much in here, but towards the beginning of the text, he says the sign itself is a tool. And so I think what you're saying here does kind of relate to where we started with the articulation of something is at once the effacement of it. Uh, And this happens through calculation through calculability through inscription of some kind or other and that inscription can present itself in a number of ways obviously as writing as a calendar as you say you know marking the the dates off the clicking of a clock the the rising and setting of the sun and all of these things have a or ascribed or designated a semiotic structure as well if that makes sense or there they're also represented as a sign. If you think about the sun as a clock, then you're no longer thinking of the sun. Right. Okay. You've replaced the sun with a sign. And so I think this kind of factors into some of what he was saying earlier on in the book about the, and I think this was an open question for us. And I think it's still something of an open question now of what place technicity has in Stiegler's metaphysic. I think what I'm interpreting you meaning there is is back to the question we had about the extent to which, say, the grammar mm. is baked into the structure of, like, the world, or to what extent it's a human sort of invention. Uh, because he uses the, the other key word that keeps coming back. So if um, improbable slash improbable is the word that he keeps using for being, for Dasein, then programmability, or the program being a technical term, but also in favour of and, and for, in advance of grammar, grammar, programmability, uh-huh. is the other word that keeps coming back. And he references the idea of the sun as like a program. Uh And I I think that's what I understand you're saying there in terms of 
the the sum becomes a sign, and then and then it it, it starts to work in a system that starts to, um, in one sense, regulate. And so you could argue that that is technicity in in the structure of the world somehow, that rather than humans inventing it, it has it itself invented the human. Yes, he does say. The proxying of a clock is the hepatic mark of Promethea, the liver consumed by day but restored by night. There is then something like the proxying of a clock before all historical natural programmatic systems, from the day and the seasons to the real-time installations of global capitalist industry. This proxying would have always already called forth a historial programmability. It is something like the minimum program or the program from default, qua the programmatic, improbable, and impossible absence of any program. I'm sort of reading this alongside some of the things he talks about when he talks about the already there. The already there already comes programmed. In fact, it is a pro, as you were saying, etymologically, it's a program. I think you are wanting to interrogate the question of the extent to which Stiegler is asserting that there is a prior to the human that makes possible being. And if the movement of the sun and the moon is a proxy for a clock uh, that regulates time and, um, or, I mean, we we maybe need to talk about the, the relationship between the clock and time. That feels like another key part of this chapter, but the the idea that there is a past that or an already there, I think that's absolutely part of this chapter. I totally agree. I feel like a central argument of this chapter is that the already there is prosthetic to the extent that you know culture and tradition and um, all the things around me, my family environment, the society in which I live, all of these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, are prosthetically the memory, the means by which that already there is is given to me is prosthetic. But I struggle to make the leap to say that the sun is a prosthetic. And so is it that the, the movement of the sun is like the proxy for a clock, which then leads to the kind of prosthetic, I can't do it again, it's that yeah. word prosthetic,ity got it of um technicity uh, which you know we said before is the creation of anticipation and therefore of time um i still struggle with the and i don't know how crucial this question is to the mm. reading of Stiegler, but i struggle with the, the kind of the specifics of the origin story which obviously for Stiegler is an origin story of forgetting that's the whole point the the, the epimethia um is this a technicity baked into the natural rhythms of the world or is this a human phenomenon? I still, I still feel quite confused by that. I do too. The stick with the clock image because he spends a lot of time with that. I thought it was interesting where he, he begins to kind of push Heidegger in a direction Heidegger didn't, I don't think he meant to go in. So he talks about Dasein not as what being, but what time is. So is it so time? Time becomes the antecedent rather than being. And I think he uses this image of time as a vice, 
And I think this is where he gets into the discussion of, we've sort of touched on it, the idea of fixing. Yeah. The idea of determining the now. A thing like that can only happen. You can only determine the now if you have something against which to measure it. So the clock becomes a proxy for time. Or rather, the clock comes to stand for time in an attempt to fix it, pin it down so that we can know where we are and know who we are. And that who-ness, <laughs> that's a good word, that who-ness, the realization of that who-ness is exactly what gives rise to whatness. I don't know if I would have expressed it that way, and I'm just processing whether... Um, so, uh, okay, let me let me say it how I had understood the idea of that who-ness. I agree, that's a great word. I think to me this is the key concept from Heidegger in this chapter, is the idea that being is always deferred. Um, uh-huh. And this feels like partly Heidegger and partly... Stiegler really pushing the kind of most Derridian kind of reading of Heidegger. So the idea that because being is being towards death, and in fact is being for death, that is literally the the thing that constructs uh, anticipation, which constructs time and uh, meaning and so on. But there is always an excess to my being while I'm alive uh, is always a thing that is going to come because I'm a being towards death. But the point at which I die is the point at which that excess ceases. There's no more, there's no excess. I've, I've finished and I'm done. I'm producing no more. And so that idea that um, there's always an excess produces this sense that the you can't sort of locate, and this is where I feel like I just wish I had a better handle on Heidegger's language, and I feel like I need to read the chapter five more times, but the the idea that I can't quite locate my being because the being is always out of reach. That's the whole character of being, is it's always, a, it has to become, so there's an excess that always gets away from me. And so being is futurity, It um, and it's that sense that being produces this future which actually allows me to conceptualize that I, I have a past and so for Heidegger this idea of authenticity but it's an authenticity that's incredibly idiomatic idiotic it's um and the humans don't live authentic lives because we don't live in relation to time because to live in relation to time is to constantly be reminded of our own death I think what Stieg is saying is if in similar fashion and not just similar fashion, but uh, intrinsically linked to that is we don't want to live with an acknowledgement of our own prosthetic uh-huh. because it's the fact that we have a, a prosthetic life that is also the basis on which we are a being towards death. And so by wanting to constantly avoid acknowledgement of our death, uh, we don't live authentic lives. We uh, forget we perform the fault of Epimetheus oh. so that we don't deal with the prosthetic nature of our life, our being, our memory, and so on. So I felt, uh, I, I felt like that was a big thing that was 
certainly important to me in my reading of the chapter. Um, I felt like the the idea of the clock and the development of the what from the who or their reciprocal relationship had to be understood in that sense of the who constantly exceeding itself and getting away from itself and that being the nature of of the experience of that sign. Yeah, all that sounds right to me. One of the things I was wondering about as I was reading this and I'm always wanting him to lean into a sort of psychoanalytic discourse on what he's doing as well, because I just think it, it sort of lends itself so well to that, what you were describing in, in terms of excess, there's different ways of kind of getting at that right sort of gap between being and becoming existence. It kind of denotes that in and of itself, right? To exist is to live outside of oneself. So hence you get the, the talk about prosthesis, but another way of talking about it is in terms of desire. There's several points throughout where I was anticipating he would at least make some reference to desire as anticipation, desire as a quality of Dasein. And that's fine. Um, It's not, I don't think it's crucial for his argument. It's an interesting reflection. I think that Heidegger's existential analytic comes from quite a different tradition within the psychoanalytic tradition as a whole. Yeah. Uh, from, say, the Freudian tradition, even when you cut, come all the way down to like Lacan, where the language of desire is foregrounded, but in the existential analytic, it's not, is my sort of layman's understanding of that. I think maybe what I was trying to say with all of that stuff about the, about the excess, because you were saying that what makes sense to me about the, the clock trying to determine the now and the experience of that sign is one in which the now is always oriented towards what's going to happen, the, the future, because being is always exceeded. And what I couldn't quite work out within Stiegler is the extent to which the clock as trying to create the now is celebrated or critiqued. Uh-huh. I mean, maybe it's just described, but um, it, it felt like there was some weight on it, you know? That's kind of what I was thinking too. It's more of a, a description, although sometimes it's hard to tell. In fact, there was once or twice in here when I was reading, I thought he was kind of presenting his own view, but then I realized a couple of paragraphs later, he was presenting Heidegger's view. He writes this on the top of 237. There is time only as this deferral that generates differences. The difference is a referral, a reflection of the who in the what and reciprocally. The analysis of the technological possibilities of the already there, particular to each epoch, will consequently be that of the conditions of reflexivity, of mirroring of a who in a what. I'm still kind of getting this sense, and I don't think I. I don't pretend to completely understand the conjunction that he's taking for granted here between the the who and the what. I think that's what I'm looking for him to talk a bit more. But I think this idea of mirroring of a who in a what just brings to mind when he was talking in an earlier chapter about mirror neurons, Mm -hmm. talking about the relationship of the hands and the tools and how upon a certain account, eventually we develop these mirror neurons. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense because because that was about the idea of the invention of the human, which oh. was the use of tools constructs the brain in a certain way. A allows for the use of tools, but B it constructs the identity 
uh, or the sort of self-reflexivity somehow, but also the use of tools extends the human. So the invention of the human is 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 partly a neurological development, but it's also uh, an ontological development where the human is is prosthetically extended. Right, prosthetically extended, but at the same time ontologically constituted by that prosthetic. Yeah. Maybe we've already kind of established that previously, the the sort of conjugation between the who and the what. It's just some I guess it's something for me that I'm interested to really think through more. Yeah. And I, I wish he would um he would just have been clearer. Have, just a little <laughs> yeah, or just kind of like, yeah, just unpack that a little bit more. But I guess that's not kind yeah. of central uh, to where he wants to go. I mean, we don't know where he's going to end up. Also, I feel like it's, um, I mean, this, uh, this whole kind of very French style of writing, which in one, I mean, overall, I do love it, but it, it's a bit exhausting, isn't it? And it no, it is because he'll say things like, he'll, he'll say something in the most obscure possible way. And I'm like, I'll have to read it three times. I'm like, oh, he was just saying something very simple that I could have, like, I could have yeah. said in a much simpler way and he just kind of overcomplicates things or maybe it's a product of translation i don't know but it is it is pretty fucking annoying because like i feel like i'm having to do like extra work yeah but i do think that that is the point i mean that's what i've just personally come to appreciate about french writing over the years and partly the translation into english can make it challenging because the discourse of the language is different but um yeah i do think you get worked harder but in the end you understand in a deeper way because you've had to work harder. You can't sort of just say, oh, I kind of got that right. Nice one, package that on the shelf. Um, uh-huh. uh, just going back to the the idea of the clock and the idea of fixing, you mentioned the vice as something that is fixing, but he, want, he wants to talk about fixing as establishing. Uh-huh. That, I think, is where it relates to the notion of the already there as history. And there's this discussion, and again, I, I was struggling quite with the terminology because he wants to kind of distinguish history from historiality. I think the distinction is that history is when we'll get into a, a you know a, essentially a much more recent past that we can describe in a certain kind of way according to a very fixed uh, temporality. But historiality is the already presentness of the world uh, as we encounter it. And that prosthetic is constitutive of that already there-ness and tradition and so on. And, and even just knowledge of our, our ability to know that we're already there, oh. uh, to, to, to understand that we have a past or that there is a past that exceeds us, uh, just as we have a future that exceeds us, and that somehow the clock as like fixing, in one sense it's trying to fix the present, but by fixing it's establishing the present, which is the task or the, the effect of the prosthetic past. Uh, I feel like there's a relationship between those two, between the kind of technical construction of this tool that fixes a present Yes. Or fixes a now and the prosthetic nature of the past that enables us to have a present. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I mean, he touches on this a couple of times. One of the arguments that he wants to make, sort of minor argument, as I take it, he wants to disabuse us of the idea that writing inaugurates history, right? Because that's usually the typical account anthropologically. What I think he wants to say is along the lines of what you were saying, 
is that it's not just writing itself. It's this act of, of fixing or trying to establish either by way of tradition, by way of the compass, by means of the clock. And these allow us to further establish ourselves as a who by means of a what. You know, if I'm reading a book, I'm in some sense determining who I am in relation to this book. Uh, even if it's not a story about myself, there's something that's being handed down or transmitted. It's the already there. And so the benefits of that to me is that it gives me a sense of identity, a sense of nowness. Uh, so firstly, uh, that's really helpful to me. I hadn't made that connection between what he was saying about history, writing and compasses and all that, trying to fix things as a way of fixing now to try and determine identity. And I think that this is where the Heideggerian analytic, this then comes back to the idea that that sign always exceeds itself. And therefore my, my experience of my existence is always plagued by some kind of anxiety about this excess, about the future, because the future is fundamentally my death. Um, yeah. And so the task of living authentically for Heidegger is to live with Dasein. There's so many ways that we don't do that. And instead we take up concern, you know, so we're concerned by all these things, but the task, the existential challenge is to live authentically with our being and face uh, our death, essentially. And in Stiegler's term, that would also mean facing our prostheticity. He hasn't said this explicitly, but I was wondering if he wants to sort of bring those two elements together. He's already extended or expanded, however you want to put it, the, the sense of what constitutes the human, as we've said, through prosthesis. And now you have this epiphylogenetic quality that relates to or describes development of that phenomenon through time. I'm wondering if one of the arguments here is that if humans are understand as, you know, design being towards death, then what does it mean when you have this modified understanding of the human as constituted by prosthesis, by tools, by non-living matter? Mm. It becomes a, a cyborg design, if that makes sense, right? Because yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, really interesting. The, the basic structure of Dasein remains, only now it is understood as being constituted through prosthesis, through techniques, which precede and exceed the human. Yeah, I think that's correct, which I think is also what Heidegger says about Dasein. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Because my, my understanding of Heidegger's sort of shift is he writes about being and time, and then he shifts later to write about time and being. Right. And so he did this kind of relationship between being as a concept and then being as in the experience of being, oh. as in I am a being, sort of I'm a being towards death rather than being. as, uh, And so being is this kind of phenomenon that is already yeah. precedes me and exceeds me um, and is somehow the character of my own being, which is this sense of when I die, it's when I stop exceeding myself. Yeah. One of the things that occurred to me, he's wanting to not necessarily read Heidegger against Heidegger. It's not that kind of thing. He's, he just wants to kind of, as we've said, push Heidegger further while considering what 
has gone unthought in Heidegger, namely Epimetheus. But I think he also wants to push beyond the sort of purely phenomenological. And this is one of the reasons perhaps why, for example, you get the title of this book, instead of being in time, it's technics in time. I think he wants to supplant being with technics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And and I think one way to think about that is um, so earlier earlier on in the chapter, you know, he takes on some of the critics of Heidegger because obviously Heidegger is always carries this big open question. You know, ended up supporting the Nazis. Something somewhere must be wrong, uh, and it's hard to be clear about what that is. And the critics easily pick up on his relation to rootedness and land and the relationship between ethnicity and land. And uh, so Stiegler's saying, uh, I've forgotten the person who had done the reading of Heidegger, but Stiegler sort of lambasts them, you know, the idea that the um, trajectory of rootlessness, of being uprooted, of being thrown, this is the idea that Dasein is thrown into the world. And this idea of being uprooted and feeling lost and having to be a wanderer is to come back home and take the land. And Stiegler's saying, no, that's absolutely not right uh, for Heidegger. Being uprooted is fundamental to the existential experience of Dasein. The task is to live with the uprootedness, the thrownness. It is not to get back. Um, Even if you are on the land that was the land that was your home, you still experience an uprootedness. Maybe that's the, you know, maybe that could be said to be, if not the, you know, one part of Heidegger's failure was he failed to live the authentic life he wrote about. Right, perhaps, yeah. And that that makes a lot of sense to me, really, the idea that um, all of his political thought would be entirely joined up with his philosophy, you know, seems to me is a big ask, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a kind of half-baked thought that I've had, but I've done this exercise for myself where I take an object, any object, and I say, what does that stand in for? Even if nothing preceded it, it stands in for something. It stands in for at least a desire. So for example, take a car, you know, what does it replace? Well, it replaces the horse, the need to walk. And I guess this is a sort of McLuhan point is how technology, as it extends our being, it also fundamentally changes our being in important ways. And anyway, I'm a little bit off track from where I wanted to go, but I was just thinking of how, you know, like Nietzsche writes quite a bit about vitality and vigor and strength, health, because he was a sick motherfucker. You know, he was, he spent half of his life in bed. And so I'm just kind of applying that possibly uncharitably, but I don't give a shit to Heidegger as well. He's writing about a life of authenticity that he, he doesn't have access to for whatever reason. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you write about the thing that you wish you had and you say that it's the most necessary thing and it's the thing that you know you can't have. Yeah, and I guess I'm just kind of making that comment, reflecting on the obvious fact of Heidegger's shitty politics um, and what Nazism represents, at least in one sense, that it is, it's many things, but you could say it's a means of fixing oneself. Yeah. And I wonder if this has to do with the act of interpretation. On one hand, when somebody inscribes something, they're trying to make something concrete. Of course, it's a failed attempt, but it's an attempt to make permanent that which is inherently impermanent. Then, of course, anyone who comes afterward 
and tries to interpret it is met with the problem of interpretation. What was an attempt at fixity, I guess, at stability, has become a destabilizing act, if that makes sense. Yeah, destabilizing in one sense, um, or something that feels like it's too fixed, uh, it's too controlling. I find this idea of the uprootedness in Heidegger really interesting because I think this plays to that in the sense that the uprootedness feels like the opposite of fixing in the sense of establishing. That sign is thrown into the world, this deep feeling of uprootedness. And I think what Stiegler is wanting to say about the uprootedness in Heidegger is saying that what they had not understood is the way in which uprootedness was a positive thing for Heidegger, albeit a very challenging one. And it just made me think of the idea of articulation that we talked about in earlier chapters, the prosthetic capacity for movement that uprootedness enables you to have. You know, if you're not a tree, uh, but in fact you have legs, uh, you have the capacity to move around and therefore you're not rooted. Uh, and the capacity for movement is what creates the capacity for, uh, essentially in, in Stiegler's kind of going back to Leroy Gohan, the, the evolution of the human, that articulation and movement is the basis on which technicity might be possible and the, and the, and the possibility then of futurity and excess and becoming and potential and, and ultimately then the idiom in the sense of the individual uh, and so the um, uprootedness is actually not just a kind of existential experience of being thrown into work, to the world, but is actually a function of technicity, right. um, where we literally are uprooted uh, because we can move. And because we can move, all sorts of things flow from that in terms of making tools, anticipating the future, um, prosthetic history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess perhaps that's one reason, again, why he wants to kind of pull away from being as the central term in this expanded Heideggerian project to include techniques, which suggests or implies movement, as you were just saying. I think that's really interesting. There's also something in there that I did want to just reflect on briefly, which was when he starts to talk about the, the time that we would call history, he's, he then wants to start talking politically about the citizen rather than the subject, because the citizen is in an uh, isonomy in order to have autonomy. Uh, and um, I think I've got that word right. I think that I had to look it up. Uh, so isonomy is the kind of status of all being equal before the law in order to then have autonomy as an individual and be constituted as a citizen rather than just a subject. And that this becomes essentially the technical apparatus that hands us our contemporary history um, in which we find our being in the world in this kind of, you know, I, I read that as like last 6,000 years kind of history. Yeah, yeah I think um, he, would, he would say uh, epoch. Epoch, yeah, thanks, yeah. And, th and then he really raises the question of this moment, and he's writing in the early 90s, where it's like the end of history. Berlin Wall has just come down. There's no future. He's citing like punk movements in France that, you know, there's no future. You know, simultaneously, he is at the advent of the kind of communication technologies that essentially shortcut space in order to create simultaneous 
experience. And uh, again, I'm slightly reading ahead because I think you'll get to this in the next chapter. But obviously now we live in this world where you know, everything is constantly now. And so he wants to cite things like news in real time in yep. inverted commas, you know, that is like, because real time is happening now, this, everything simultaneously. And therefore, if everything's simultaneous, then nothing is deferred. And so that's right. this kind of super fixing. This is language I think you've given me in this call that I wouldn't have been able to use on this, but that feels like a super fixing of the now, which then prevents the deferment of being the difference of being, which is actually essential to the authentic uh, existential experience of Dasein. And so I've, I've seen this sort of play occurring in Steger then between the kind of technical milieu we now find ourselves in, which yes. is absolutely set against authentic Dasein. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. I had that thought too about how from a technological perspective, the, the explosive capacity of calculation, we have more and more tools to fix the now. There's consequences to that. There's a too much at onceness. Mm. We don't know how to make sense of everything at once. And then the other thing is that it progressively collapses the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm going to say as well. It's the two things go together for Stiegler. Is yeah. it too much now equals no excess and no excess equals no future. And so the internet and the rise of apocalyptic sensibility is actually, there's an explanation for that phenomenon in Stiegler, I think. Yeah, there's an explanation in Stiegler for that. And also, this is not his focus, at least in this book, but he does kind of here and there at least acknowledge that this process that he's describing can't be thought apart from capitalist industrialism. Um, yeah. So I don't know where, uh, how or even if, he, if he's going to bring that sort of discussion in later. Like I said earlier, I have a better sense now for Stiegler's project at this point. I would hope so. We're almost through the book. And it's definitely given me some new things to think about, some different ways of thinking. I, again, do not know what to do with it. I think for me, this chapter was actually quite personally meaningful because oh. you know, I said to you before, I, I spent some time in therapy with a Heideggerian analytic, and it reminded me more clearly of some of the nature of that. This idea about living authentically is about embracing the fundamental anxiety and uncertainty and the, the sort of slippage and excess of being as it kind of gets away from you. And working with that uprootedness, I haven't read this in Steger, but my understanding is that Heidegger develops the idea of a kind of pilgrimage as a way of processing that uprootedness, you know, not having to fix everything mm. uh, becomes really important and valuable. And I, so that this returned me to that. And I think that the thing that Steger is doing that's also really got me thinking is the way in which that is related to this sort of prosthetic being and you know we've talked about you know but you become more aware of the way in which your body and your being is extended by all of these other material tools and things in life and so to think the relationship between that authenticity and the sort of incomplete being and but actually in terms of the stuff like i've never never thought about that before so yeah, i found that quite meaningful no and it's interesting too because upon that view 
it's not just like, oh, I'm surrounded by stuff. I'm extended by it. Yes, that's true. But again, going back to the idea that we're constituted by this stuff, it's like, all right, what do I have around me that I'm being constituted by? Like, it, it really does make a difference for me in terms of like what kind of things I choose to have around. You know mm. what I mean? And I think maybe this is one reason why for, for someone like me, you know, a lot of clutter gives me a, a lot of anxiety. Hmm. Um, because I'm constituted by that clutter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to what extent is, is that fixing us? I mean, that, that, that's the concept I hadn't thought about before we talked today, but the, you know, to what extent am I using, like, I mean, particularly my phone, I feel like that is the number one piece of technical apparatus that is constant, is like absolutely an extension of my being. And to what extent do I use it to try and fix to establish myself um, against this uprooted feeling of uncertain mm. non-presence. Yeah, avoiding the authenticity of, of Dasein, I guess you could say. Yeah. Right. And I, I think one of the things that occurred to me when reading this was that there are, well, he talks about fixing as one strategy, but another one, I guess, would be more of a mystical nature. And I'm not really sure how to put that, but I wrote in the margins maybe just because I've read Petra's book, but mysticism as revolt. It's a way of therapeutically, well, there's different ways of kind of looking at it, right? It's a therapeutic escape. There's also a way in which you can escape the parameters and the, not escape, but perhaps to place some kind of separation between, and this is paradoxical too, because on one hand, place a separation between yourself and the already there, what you're being constituted by, at the same time where you may realize that for maybe this is it, perhaps it's, it's in the very realization of one's inseparability from everything, the already there, that one is able to put in place or imagine ways of separating oneself from, for example, toxic forms of tradition, varieties of the already there that are, um, that are shitty. <laughs> I yeah. feel like I, I struggled a lot to say that. I no, but it's I mean, it, when you were speaking, I was, I, I think the struggle reflects a question that still hangs there for me around Diegler's reading of Heidegger, which is if our being is constituted by this prosthetic technicity, and if the past is a prosthetic already there tradition that it, it that constitutes who we are how do we really constitute that idiomaticity that Stiegler is asserting is crucial to you or my individual being and what agency do we then have in the end to uh, preserve or strengthen that or to live authentically in a way that is idiomatic to you or I in our own being, that may require a rereading of the chapter, or it may be that Stiegler's not addressed it or doesn't properly address it and it's a critique. I don't know. It's a, uh, that feels like a, a question that's quite important if, if we're saying our being is constituted prosthetically. Yeah, that's a question for me as well. And I've, I've been asking myself this maybe a little bit differently. And, I, and I've been sort of framing it in terms of alienation, which in a lot of conversations and different discourses, it's descriptive, but a lot of times it's done so in, in negative terms, right? Like we don't, we don't want alienation. We want to be immersed in being and 
we want to experience the the world as uh, as a unity and and not feel separate from ourselves and from others and so on. At the same time, maybe this is a similar thing to what you're talking about. I think there's a real positive aspect to alienation because that creates gap, real mm-hmm. or real or imagined, that gives one space. It gives one leverage, if that makes sense. Have you seen Doctor Strange too, the new Doctor Strange movie? No. So I saw it last night, and it, I think this is a theme that comes up in that in that movie as well, because it, it has to do with the the multiverse, right? And one of the things that happens is he goes around and he meets all these different versions of himself, or even hears about dead versions of himself. And in each universe, he has the same personality. He's this guy who, uh, as one of the characters says, always has to be holding the knife, right? Like wherever he is in the in the universe, he can't. He can't free of himself of how he's been constituted. Mm. And so and so then to uh, defeat the villain in the story, there's this space that's in between all realities. It's in a sense, it's outside realities. They describe it as the intersection of all realities. And there's a book there, a sort of magic book. There's lots of magic in witchcraft and sorcery and shit in this, in this uh, story. And that's supposed to give whoever has the book whatever they need to defeat their enemy. So he has to go outside the confines of reality to get this book. And then the book doesn't do shit. It doesn't do anything. It like immediately gets destroyed. But during the rest of the movie, he does things that are completely out of character. So the book didn't give him like some super weapon. It gave him like, they don't say this explicitly. I was just kind of reflecting on it this morning, but like it gives him courage. Uh, it gives him, uh, I, I don't know. He just, it, it changed his personality. And the change in his personality is the thing that made him able to defeat the enemy because he was trying to, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot going on in the movie. Just reminded me of of that. So I figured I'd mention it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and is it the book or is it this, is it the being able to get to the space and can they be separated? I don't know. I was sort of reading it as a, similar to this idea of the positive nature of, alienation that you know there's something to be said for although it's unfashionable in certain circles transcendence you know of reaching beyond even if that beyond is completely imagined i think there's something in that something in trying to imagine the impossible reaching for Mm. the impossible that makes new things possible yeah I find that really interesting, and particularly the idea of alienation as a positive thing when read from a sort of oppressive whole. Well, I mean, that's the sort of thing that one would develop in meditation, right? Because you learn to yeah, detach. Uh, to detach rather than fix. Mm. And that detachment allows you to, well, it creates a space. Yeah. Okay. In, in which you can act instead of react. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I don't know, man. This. I'm I'm really enjoying the reading, but I'm also excited that we are <laughs> nearly finished. We're almost to the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have loved this. I, I think the more we go on, that I think I'm going to um, engage with Stigler in my PhD. Just so useful for me to work this through and do the work and the conversation with you. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, so we got one more chapter, I think. Is it just one more? I think so. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So you you say your dad's got a retirement party? 
Yeah, we're we gotta head out in a little bit. Um, I gotta start getting ready in a few minutes. Actually, he um, he's retiring from the symphony, where he spent his whole career. He, he's a trombonist. Oh wow! Yeah, very respectable profession around the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's what he's done. He's made a career playing the trombone. So like you know, that's so, very yeah. cool. Yeah. So today's the last concert. Um, there's going to oh, be like deal. a reception and the, yeah. that, sort of, that sort of thing. So, oh, it's a big moment. Yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll enjoy good. that. All right, man. I'm going to run. Um, yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Yeah. All right. All right take care, man. Bye.